many forces and many changes that are being pushed at us. We, we can call ourselves good custodians of, of, uh, of the land, of the forest, of our own knowledge. So hello everyone, uh, I'm in Oxford in the United Kingdom and I am looking at this subject of, um, uh, some people start with the idea of decolonization of museums, but it's also um, meeting uh, people, learning about their culture. For everyone listening, uh, this could be one of the first times that they learn about the Maasai and then we get to the subject of how we understand Maasai, how museums, schools, all the different ways we know one another or we think we know one another. Um, but one of the subjects that people often want to know about, I of course want to know about, is we hear many male voices, men talking. Uh, and there of course are many women <laughs> in the in the in the Maasai, uh, among the Maasai. And we should hear from them, I think. I think it would be an interesting perspective, different and important. So in order to get some answers to some questions to learn, I'm here with Evelyn and Juliana, but I'll let them introduce themselves, including saying your name and uh, telling me a, a little bit about where you are from. Um, and I think that's something that everyone can get to know you a little bit. Uh, so, Evelyn? My name is Evelyn. I am from the southern part of Tanzania, a region called Mbea. And I am here at Oxford to represent the Irparakuyo Maasai, where I belong. The place that I come from, we are surrounded by mountains, um, but it gets really dry um, for, th uh, for four months. Maybe we have rain, but for the rest eight months, it is really dry. And we, have, we raise livestock for a living, which makes it challenging. My name is Juliana Mashati from uh, Kenya, Narok County, uh, Loita, South, Narok South. Uh, Your home, what is yes. it like? How does it look? <laughs> yeah, we have a lot of rains. It is raining, flooding. So as from now, the rain is not going good. When you first heard about um, that there is a museum in the UK. They're showing some objects from uh, your culture, but actually, there's some question marks. They they have some objects actually that um, they maybe shouldn't have. What did you first hear, uh, if you remember, when you first heard about this, and what did you think uh, regarding this? Eventually, you would make this trip. But even before you made this trip, you, you first heard about uh, the situation. And how did you think, or what did you think at that time? The first time, it was Samuel who saw the artifacts, our artifacts sitting in the museum. And when Samuel went back, he told them about the artifacts that were sitting here, but she couldn't really believe. So she wanted to physically see them so that she, 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 first of all, so that she can believe. 
nadol intokitin na ata and um when i came i saw for myself and i couldn't believe because even some of the items like ikatari which are sensitive in our culture um the ones that that we have now are different than what i have seen and it is, has really shocked me we, we often talk about the objects in a summary we say yeah they are problematic uh, they are sacred but let's make sure that people understand what makes an object um important sacred um versus something that is just beautiful because i think you also have things that are beautiful but are not sacred right someone asked this yesterday that the difference between object that is sacred and an object that is not ore kwa mfano orkatar for the case of irkatari or qatar it is um a bracelet that is given to the oldest son so that he can handle the family the way his dad was handling when he passed on when he died and it is it is not given to anybody and it is different from a bracelet that i'm wearing now this one anybody can wear juliana is wearing an orange bracelet with black and white beads it's very nice um and indeed i feel like I have seen some other people with something like it but yeah yeah just to describe it some people have said to me but I I've never asked um that in um in Maasai culture women are making most of the items sacred and non-sacred uh, let's maybe we start somewhere else tell me about um many people ask the role of women and perhaps the connection with the objects that we we've seen we may see in our lives if we travel uh to communities that maybe are selling or giving as a gift even um but also perhaps the objects that you don't give as a gift um what is the role of women involved in this creating it or sharing it all the beadwork is done by women whether it is sacred or non sacred we are the ones who make because the men don't know simply don't know how to make yeah so. and, and no one teaches them no. women get taught yes women get taught yes women get taught and because you start from a very very young age very young age yes. you sit with your mom and all other all the women and you observe and you you develop the even if you don't develop the interest the, the, eventually you're in the system so they would teach you and slowly the the girls would pick the skill and move on to adulthood in our culture when the livestock meaning the cattle the sheep the goats go to graze the women who stay back home they would get together whether it is under the tree or near somebody's house and each woman would be working on would be beading working on her beads and each person would be making something dif totally different mm. but because you are not you don't have another job you are not employed so you sit and each person would be working on a different item for example juliana might be working on this somebody else working on that somebody else working on that and you can imagine if they are young people they would come around they would observe 
So that is the training ground to train young girls so that when they are also adults they pick this uh, they 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 practice the same skill and pass it to the next generation. Are there uh, sacred items you mentioned to me for example the bracelet that a father gives to the oldest son and it symbolizes you will manage now the family the way I manage the family. Are there such objects that pass from mother or I don't know grandmother from women to women? Yes, we also have something that we pass on um that um we pass on to mothers really and maybe eventually to other girls. You know, we women uh girls in our culture get circumcised and when that girl is circumcised they put osikrai which is kind of a, a decoration and it has like three three seashells kind of a thing. And when she's circumcised, she'll wear it for several days and then she'll take off and then that is passed on to her mother. And her mother is is going to wear that and when she doesn't want to wear it anymore, at least she'll take the three shells and if she makes something out of that, then she'll continue to, to, to wear that or she can pass on to another girl in that house, in that same family. And there is also something that is called a monyorit. It is like a chain, but it is a long, sometimes several chains like this. Maybe they are bound together or sitting next to each other. And you wear it on, the woman would wear it on the ear, but she can... It is not really passing on, but if there is a, an important ceremony, she can give it to a husband, her husband, and the husband would go to the ceremony. And when the husband comes back, give it back to the woman. So nobody else. Not make make a ceremony. And it is not, um, I mentioned that when uh, a father goes or husband goes to a ceremony, and that ceremony doesn't have... It is a specific ceremony. For example, maybe uh, another elder is have a celebration circumcising his or her children and you are sitting, it is like you are accompanying. Mm -hmm. So that is the only time that you would wear that demonyurity. This gives me a lot more understanding of the types of objects that all of that you just described, normally they get passed on to a specific person. And if they were ever to be found, in somebody else's home, in a museum, something is wrong, right? And and so this is, um, I think, very useful information because it helps us to understand if we are not from Maasai uh, tribes, uh, then we understand, for example, what is uh, a sacred object, what isn't a sacred object. So I think that's very important for us to understand and really interesting and very beautiful too. In this process, we, we call decolonizing museum. Uh, this week you've spent... Uh, two weeks. Two weeks, yeah. yeah. Many people are wondering, I'm certainly one. Um, you mentioned in the beginning, Sam told you that he had seen the objects in the museum. Now Sam is Sam. He's a man. He's uh, has his experience. You have a different experience. Um, what would you say uh, is the importance, um, the role of being a woman involved in this process. 
how do you see things perhaps like a man wouldn't? For yes, we see things in a different light and since we are here in our delegation there we are seven and we have two women. And for us, um we see things differently. For example, <clears throat> in our society, not only our our culture, but uh, even in many African societies, for example, um, not everybody has a job or a decent way of helping themselves. So uh, the other day when we were in London, there was a statistic, I don't know to what extent it is true, but they say in every one person that is working, that person is supporting 17 people. So you have, you see me as Evelyn, you see Juliana as Juliana, but behind Juliana there are 17 people if she if she had a decent way of um, helping her family or other people or relatives. And so for two people here, it will be 34 people. You'll see two people, but behind us there is 34 people. So what we have uh, seen um the Ikatari, for example, in total, the sacred items, we saw seven. Seven, one in Pitt River and six from Cambridge Museum. And so there are seven, in, in, in real sense, we are seeing seven objects. But in reality, there was violence, people were killed because the, even the calabash, um, with the assistance of the spiritual leader, um, have guided us and really <clears throat> uh, told us what has happened. And we have seen a lot of violence. We have seen a woman being killed with a baby on her back. And we, it is just simple suffering. If seven men have died in our society at, at that time, there are many families, their families have been affected. Their mothers, their wives, their children. And um, um, it has affected the respective families in many great ways, not only the way to support themselves, but since we are a highly patriarchal society, it is like, why is the direction if the head of the house or the head of the home <laughs> is gone? So there, it has really pained us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, not only that, because we are, the women are making bids, but yes, they are making bids, but there is so much that has been involved and so much suffering so we we are we are seeing it in that kind of a light mm -hmm. and the struggles that are still going on because of the colonialism because of the lands in 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 the <clears throat> over here they are speaking of decolonizing but for us yeah decolonizing <laughs> mm -hmm. to me or to us you it would go way further because the land struggles struggles to just even to exist to justify yourself because people would be like why do the Maasai have all this land mm. and you are competing for the natural resources the national park want the same land we are squeezed and squeezed and squashed and squashed As you rightly say, you know, 
the struggle that we describe, sometimes we talk about historical struggles, but there are struggles right now. And many people uh, who might be far away, they don't feel it. Maybe they're in the capital. They don't know. Uh, maybe they're far away in another country. They don't know. But back home, people are fighting, as you say, for, for land. There's a lot happening, um, especially around the subject of land being taken and also uh, forced changes to, to the way of life. If you can speak a little bit about, um, you even mentioned yesterday, new, I don't know if there are rules, but saying you can't have this many cattle or you shouldn't have this many cattle um, and how that impacts society. Um, I can talk about, uh, for example, um, in Tanzania, there is an issue of uh, village, uh, there is a law, village act that was passed in 1994. And basically what the law is saying is if um, you live in a certain village, you should, especially with the animals, I mean, the farm cannot move. But if you have animals, they should not go beyond those boundaries. And for us, we don't have an intensive uh, livestock farming. We're not, we don't even call ourselves farmers for, for that sense. We are pastoralists. You move around with the cattle. Of course, the, the, the law and the pressures would force you. Somehow, I can say we have adapted for our case because uh, at least when, the, the, when it is really dry, the rest of the family would stay, they would have a permanent base, maybe I should I should call it that way. But the young men would go around, uh, walk around with the cattle, find pasture, find water, find what. But with the, with the village act then, it doesn't, it is forcing you to use the land and um, get the best out of. So if, 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 you, if you have more livestock, According to the law, you should reduce or seek permission. And then the farmers around us have really exploited that because they would say, oh, even when there are no crops, like in the middle of October or September, when it is already dry, they would say, oh, you know, the cows, when they step on the land, they are um, uh, destroying the, 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 the infrastructure, the irrigation infrastructure. But if you really look what they are destroying, there is no sense. But to me, I think um, the, the, the farmers, uh, the decision makers should really go because even if the cows are on the land, they are providing fertilizer. Mm -hmm. And in they, maybe they rely on the um, big companies fertilizer or industrial fertilizer. But to me, that is an advantage if the animals can come, leave the manure and when the time comes, just to, 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 to bring that spirit back. Because in the past, we lived in harmony. It wasn't like that. But now the situation is really, really worse. And if you look at this law, the same laws, it is like they are contradicting themselves. Like annually, there is wild beast migration. Or even if you look at all the ecosystems in the country, you have the Mikumi, for example. And the Mikumi is a Mikumi is a national park in Morogoro region, and it has the same ecosystem. It will go all the way to the Selous Game Reserve. The animals are moving freely, but why isn't the same law applied to the uh, livestock? Why do you limit the livestock? Mm.
So you have uh, for uh, the big um, migration that is known in the world, the Serengeti migration, where the wild beasts can freely move between the Serengeti, go all the way to Masai Mara freely. Yes. They live, but and they, it is the ecosystem. But w- the the same should be applied really to livestock. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. So there, yeah, the policies that are, as you said, almost. Um, Canceling each other out, or, or yeah, yeah. Contradic- same contradictory. Yeah, same nation, but it d- depends. Maybe because this one, the wild uh, animals um, are bringing a lot of foreign income. Maybe they are treated in a different way. But to me, we should go. We should. We should also have the same policies for the livestock. Yeah, yeah it's it's always that and, question. And, and the, the issue is, if you are telling this person in the village. Stay in the, the, your animals should not go to another village. It is not like we want, or we want to fight with farmers. But really, if you don't have water, Mm. there is nothing left for the animals to eat. And that is what we depended on in the past. But all the areas have been turned into rice farms, uh, so and so, so and so. So it is not like we want, it is not like we prefer, I would prefer. To, to stay in our communal land, but it doesn't have the infrastructure to support our livelihood. Yeah, so it, it's interesting because here very clearly we have the connections between when we talk about artifacts, when we talk about what might be in a museum, connecting it because it is so connected to what is happening right now back home, even though we're not there even, um, what people are facing. Um, and I think that's a very important connection. So thank you for helping me see it. You asked us how we feel about um, being in a museum Mm. on decolonization and being here. But for us, we are also bringing voices and the sufferings that um, uh, women are going through in our society. Um, right now, if you were to go to many of the Maasai places, you would see donkeys, you'd see women. Um, we are not speaking about, uh, they have, uh, problems accessing. I'm not going to call clean water, but just simply accessing the water. Some people, it would, I know a place where, um, people would wake up in the morning in, uh, during the night and travel for more than six, eight hours to go to fetch water. I know a place where animals would drink water for one day and then they would rest the other day and go the other the next day. So you, the animals, the livestock don't get water every single day. So we are bringing those voices as well. We are representing those people. Yes, among the few, yeah, access to water, people are struggling. There is a lot of... um. Poverty. We have not. Uh, a few of us got a chance to go to the modern or uh, the uh, the formal education, but most of our people, maybe seventy percent, are illiterate, including boys and girls. Especially the girls are even worse. So we are bringing all those voices mm-hmm. along. Yuliana, uh, Evelyn, thank you so much. It's such a pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. I wish you all the best. Thank you. For more information about the Maasai, including details of their way of life, their struggle to keep that way of life, and the ongoing engagement with museums and related institutions, I recommend following Insight Share on Twitter 
or view their great videos on their YouTube channel. Links to both can be found in the show notes of this program right there in your podcast app that you're holding or carrying, or you can go to citizenreporter.org and they will be there. This podcast was produced in cooperation with Insight Share. Big thank you to Nick Lunch and his team in Oxford for helping make this happen. And yes, it was recorded one month before the time of social distancing and self-isolation, so be assured, this was not a case of reckless microphone use or close proximity conversations. Wherever you're listening to this program right now, I hope you're well, finding some peace, enjoy despite the state of things in the world around you. If you enjoyed this program and would like to hear more like it, subscribe. Then you can go back to the previous shows from the past 16 years, or you'll automatically receive the next show just as soon as it's published. I'll be back with you real soon, and until next time, I'm Mark Fonseca Rendeiro. Thanks for listening. See ya.